mission board. And I have seen firsthand on two different occasions this year uh, what the Lottie Moon Christmas offering uh, accomplishes on the ground. Uh, these missionaries do not live lavish lifestyles. It's for their basics of living. I've been to two third world countries this year and have seen that firsthand. And so please be praying about how God will lead you, not if, but what he will lead you to give to this International Mission Board offering. 100% of the money goes on the ground. Um, There are three types, it's been said, three types of church people. You have radical goers, radical givers, and you have the disobedient. Uh, Because our one mission is the Great Commission. It is what the church is called to do. And so please be praying as we seek to reach uh, the lost, even through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Uh, We are finishing up this chapter today. A very important passage. Uh, Just a quick announcement as you turn We had 120 um, kids sign up for Upward so far. And if you are planning to be a a coach or a referee, there are going to be two times available for you to come to a coach's meeting, December the 2nd or December the 3rd from 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock, one-hour meeting, Monday or Tuesday, December the 2nd or December the 3rd, you're required to go to at least one of those meetings Uh, if you're planning to be a coach or a referee. And I pray that uh, you would consider your part in the upward ministry. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word today. Lord, thank you for this passage. We believe uh, that this passage is important for our sanctification individually and corporately. And we believe that this passage is important for any who have never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. Uh, We pray today that they could hear the gospel and behold the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. William Montague Dyke, he was a British aristocrat, and at the age of 10 years old, he went blind. Uh, Well, eventually he went on to university in London, and he met uh, the daughter of a British admiral. They fell in love and they planned to get married. Well, as their wedding date was approaching, he was approached by some physicians about this new kind of eye surgery. There was nothing assured about it, but they said it's possible with this eye surgery you could regain your sight. And so he, uh, hoping against hope, went through this eye surgery but upon one condition. He said after the surgery... He wants the bandages to remain on his eyes until the wedding. Because if his eyes were actually corrected in this surgery, he wants the first thing he sees to be his bride as she walked down the aisle. And so they performed the surgery. And on the day of the wedding, his dad was instructed to remove the gauze as the bride walked down the aisle. And that's what happened. As the, uh, the bride began to walk down the aisle, his dad began to unwrap the gauze, not knowing what they would find behind those bandages. 
But as he unwrapped that last bandage, light began to stream in. And the first person he saw with his new corrected eyes was his bride. And he leaned over to her and he whispered, you are more beautiful than I ever imagined. You know, something like that's going to happen in our glorification. When we no longer see Jesus in part, but we see him as he really is as Savior and Lord. But I might add something like that happens in part. When we go from spiritual blindness to the moment we begin to see Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. Indeed, it's Jesus giving sight to the physically blind in the Gospels that point to that reality. And perhaps the most famous account of that is in our present passage where Jesus restores the sight of a blind man. Now, just for context, because the context matters, the last time we were together, uh, we saw Jesus predicting his death. Now, he... He has already made it clear to his disciples that he's going to die, but they just could not conceive of a Messiah, a Savior, who would die on a cross. And in fact, in the last verse of that passage, they understood none of these things, for they were hidden from them. In other words, they had physical eyes, but they could not see spiritually. And now Jesus encounters a man who did not have physical eyes, but he could see more clearly than the disciples about who Jesus was and what he came to do. Now, our present text and the next text we look at next week, the account of Zacchaeus, the short man in the tree, okay? They are the last two accounts that we read about in Luke before Jesus enters Jerusalem. So he's just days out before entering Jerusalem. He enters Jerusalem in chapter 19, verse 28. That will be a Sunday. On Friday, he's going to be crucified. And so he's only just a few days out from the cross where we read about the blind man and we read about Zacchaeus. In other words, these two last accounts are kind of the the exclamation point to what he said he came to do in his first sermon in chapter 4. You remember that first sermon in Nazareth where he stands up and he begins to read from Luke or Isaiah 61? And he says, The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and recovering of sight to the blind and liberty to the oppressed. And the proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And so these last two accounts are kind of the exclamation point to that original sermon. In other words, Jesus Christ has come to mediate mercy to a broken world. A sin-fractured world. Now, the first thing we're going to see in this account, and it's all about mercy is that our need provokes the cry for God's mercy. Our need provokes the cry 
for God's mercy. Look with me in verse 35. And as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road and begging. Now, in Mark's account, in Mark chapter 10, we read that the blind man has a name. His name is Bartimaeus. And so his name is not given here. We don't know why. But we know his name is Bartimaeus. This is blind Bartimaeus. Now, we don't know why um, his name is given. In fact, just a trivia point here. Bartimaeus is the only one in all the scripture that Jesus heals where we are given his name. But we're only given his name in Mark. And commentators speculate on why Mark gives the name and why most of the accounts of people being healed, we're not given the name. It doesn't matter. What we do know from this account is that begging, pleading, is provoked by desperate need. I mean, I don't have to convince you of that. You know that to be the case. Begging and pleading is provoked by desperate need. Indeed, in the Psalms, and the Psalms are filled with them, we see God's people who are afflicted, and they are in the desperate place. And it's out of that desperate place they begin to cry out to the Lord. This morning, I'm reading in Psalm 142. And David, incidentally, the name of the psalm is the prayer of David from a cave. How would you like that for a title? A prayer of David from a cave. He's hiding from Saul. He's in the desperate place. And he cries out, with my voice, I cry to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. And you see that throughout the psalms. For instance, in Psalm 6, verse 2, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones... Are troubled. Need provokes the cry for God's mercy. And the fact is, sometimes it's the physically afflicted uh, who have the advantage on the physically healthy with regard to this because they have a per- perpetual reminder, they have a, a living 3D HD illustration of what is true of all of us. All of us are afflicted. All of us are in need. And sometimes the physically afflicted are more aware of that than those of us who are comfortable and healthy and wealthy in our 21st century Western state. The fact is all of us are in that place. We are as desperately needy for the grace and mercy of God as any fourth stage cancer patient in a third world country. And when our physical states remind us of that, it's a grace. And that's where this man was. Anything that drives us to the face of God is a grace. You realize that? Because the face of God is the safe place. Your knees is the safest place you can be. And this man had experienced a grace because it's driving him to Jesus. Now notice this with me in verse 36. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. So there's a great ruckus going by as Jesus is passing by. Because he can't see him, he just hears it. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. 
We don't need to miss an important point here. This man is blind, but there's certainly some things that he can see. There's some things he can certainly see. Um, First of all, he could see his need, you know. He could see that he was in a desperate place. He was impoverished, and he could see that he was blind, and hence his cry. Notice in verse 38. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And this brings us to the second thing that Bart could see. Bartimaeus could see that he was in need. And he could see that Jesus was the fount of all blessing, as we sang this morning. And therefore, he was willingly, shamelessly so, to go public with his need. He was in the desperate place. You see, when you're in a desperate place, and you know this, you lay down your pride and your dignity, and you go public to get help. A few years ago, I can remember it exactly, April of 2005, I developed an ear infection. It's the most pain I'd ever experienced up to that point and even to this day. Early Saturday morning, I knew it was coming on. And so I called my physician, called her at home. You don't do that, uh, hopefully, too often. But I found her number, and I called her at home. And I said, look, my ear's hurting. I was desperate. I didn't care what she thought. And this uh, physician said, well, just go down to the drugstore and get you some over-the-counter eardrops. Well, I immediately flew to the drugstore, got some over-the-counter eardrops. You do anything you, uh, th- that you need to do when you're desperate. Well, those eardrops didn't do anything for me. So about lunchtime, the ear's getting worse. I go down to emergency care. I hate going to the doctor. Heather will tell you that, but I was desperate. And I was crying as I walked in there. I didn't care. The people were sitting in there. I did not care what they thought of me. I was crying, and I was desperate. And I told that man, I didn't care if he thought I was a drug addict. I said, I need some drugs. I, 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 I said, I need some painkillers. And I know he'd heard that before, but I meant it. And I was sincere. And he gave me some low-grade painkillers. And I went home, and those didn't touch my ear. So late afternoon, I came to Heather. She says I have a flair for the dramatic. And I, I gave her a butcher knife. And I said, put an end to my misery. And she prayed about it. And uh, <laughs> Seth, Nate, Nate was just about eight months old and he's down at our feet. So she decided not to do it. <laughs> well, this time I flew down to the ER. Okay. Baptist East ER. And I am screaming as I'm walking into that, that ER. There, there are people there with gunshot wounds. And I was saying, you have nothing on me. <laughs> All right. In fact, the ER doctor told me that it was the worst ear infection he'd ever seen. He gave me some real drugs. But, you know, I was desperate. And desperation is the birthplace, okay, for um, provoking this kind of cry. You know, it's the preconditions and, you know, for closing with Jesus, as the Puritans would say. When we see we are in a broken, desperate 
place, there's nothing or no one who can dissuade us from fleeing to our help. We will do what it takes. Isn't that true in other areas of life? You have financial issues, so what do you do? You, you hit the pavement. You look for a job. Or you, you go get the necessary education to get a job. If you have health issues, what do you do? You do what Kaywood does. Now, he eats cauliflower for every meal, right? <laughs> you, you change your diet. You begin to exercise. You do what it takes when you're in the desperate place. And this man understood in light of his desperation, he was going to flee to Christ who was the fount of all blessing. You know, there's two important aspects to this cry. First of all, it's a cry for mercy. Notice he says, have mercy on me. He understands that he is in such a place that he cannot help himself. He needs mercy. In fact, I believe there's more to uh, this cry than just a desire for healing, physical healing. I believe there is here a cry for spiritual salvation. And the reason I say that is is because of the second part of this cry. Notice how he describes Jesus. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You know, if he was familiar with the Old Testament, and I believe that he was. You would not have used that language if you were not in familiar with the Old Testament. He would have understood that this was the hope. This son of David was the hope of the world. You know, God made a covenant with Abraham, and he says, through your offspring, all the nations will be blessed. So we learn in Genesis 12 that the Savior of the world is going to come through Abraham. Well, then God comes to, to uh, David in 2 Samuel 7, many centuries later. And he says, the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham is going to come through you. It's going to come through your son. Now, we find out later it's his far-off grandson, Jesus. But we learn in 2 Samuel that the hope of the world will be the son of David. He will be the Messiah. He will be the Savior. And by the time you get to the first century, the the language of Son of David and the language of Messiah or Savior are synonymous. That's why, for instance, you'll see in Matthew 21, the children are calling Jesus the Son of David. And the scribes and the religious people are having a cow over it because they know what that confession is. By calling him the son of David, they are saying he is the savior, he's the Messiah, he's the hope of the world. And so I believe that this man is not only asking for physical healing here, he's asking for salvation. It's clear that what he is saying here about Jesus is very important. In light of the fact that Jesus just predicted his death, and in light of the fact this is one of the last accounts before he enters Jerusalem at the Passover time. He's the son of David who will be crucified on a cross. This man saw his need and he saw Jesus was the fount of, his, of all blessing. And hence there was no one or no thing that could dissuade him from closing with Christ. Look with me in verse 39. 
And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Let me just give you a hint. This is bad methodology. That would be like someone walking the aisle at the end of the service and the deacons telling them to go sit down. What do you think that person would do? They probably would go and sit down. And others would accuse the deacons of getting in the way of God, getting in the way of the work of God. This is poor methodology. This man's crying out for Jesus, and they are telling him to shut up. They're telling him to be quiet. And there's many people today in churches who say, well, if you don't extend the altar call, then you may thwart the purposes of God. And this text makes it clear that is absolutely untrue. Because when a person really understands that they are desperate and they understand that Jesus is their only hope, there is no one or no thing that's going to get in the way of that. There was no one or no thing that was going to get in the way of me getting down to the ER. Now, before I actually could get on the interstate, there was a train just stuck on the, on the tracks. And I can't prove this, but I think Carrie was in the cab of that train. Did I say, well, there's a train on the train. I'll just go back home. I don't want to just sit here and wait for this train. No, I was desperate. I waited. Now, I complained. But I waited for that train to move because nothing was going to get in the way of me getting to that ER and getting my help. Well, notice, as they are rebuking this man, notice how he responds. He cried out all the more. He cried out all the more. Bad methodology. Poor methodology. Telling this man who's crying out to Jesus to be quiet. And he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Does that remind you of anyone? You remember how chapter 18 began? You have the persistent widow. You have this persistent widow who's coming to this unjust judge. And she will not stop until she gets an answer from the judge. Isn't it interesting that this chapter begins with persistent desperation and cry. And it ends in the same way just before Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem. Furthermore, we saw in verse 17 of how we're to enter the kingdom like a child. This man is coming to Jesus like the persistent widow. He's coming to Jesus like a child. What's Luke doing? He's showing Theophilus. And he's showing Fisherville Church... What discipleship looks like. Everything else is a facade. This is true discipleship. A disciple is someone who is in a desperate, dependent state before the living God. Doxological desperation. Remember, we looked at chapter 16 just a few weeks ago. And in that uh, very important passage... He says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. 
That doesn't teach that salvation is by works. It just means that the kingdom of God is of such a nature that when we recognize that we have no hope apart from Christ the King, we will do anything it takes to get into that kingdom. We will renounce our idols, we will repent of our sins, and we will flee to Christ. That's where this man is. He has closed with Christ. And one thing we know from the Gospels as well. When we cry to Jesus for mercy, He always answers. There is no exception. He always answers. And that brings us to the second part of this passage. Jesus is the mediator for God's mercy. Jesus is the, not a mediator. Jesus is the mediator for God's mercy. There is no mercy you could ever experience in life that's not mediated through the Son of God. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Look with me in verse 40. And Jesus stopped. And he commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. We see here a window both into Jesus and Bartimaeus' heart. As for Jesus, what a Savior! What a Savior. This man's crying out for mercy. Jesus responds. He hears the cry of the desperate man. And he responds accordingly. Did you know that he's alive today? Christ is alive today. And he's doing far more exceedingly today than what he did in his days on the earth. It's hard for people to understand that or believe that, but it's absolutely the case. And that's what he meant When he said in John 16, verse 7, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now, what does it mean to go away? To ascend to the Father, where he sits at the right hand of God the Father, where he rules and reigns at the right hand of God. He said, it's to your advantage. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. Don't you love that description of the Holy Spirit? The Helper. Now, if you're not in need, that, you kind of yawn at that. But when you're in the desperate place, to read that description of the Holy Spirit, I've just made your day. The helper, if I don't go, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And the reason for this is because when Jesus was on earth before his ascension, he could only be at one place at one time. But when he ascends to the Father after his cross and his resurrection, he sends the Spirit to carry out Jesus' mission, his ministry over the entire world at all times and at all places. And that's what we have here. And so now Jesus is able to attentively respond to every cry of mercy No matter if there are billions of people across the world crying out to him at the same time. He is alive today and he is mediating mercy to those who understand they need mercy. 
Is that where you are? He's the mediator of God's mercy. But this text also gives us a window into Bartimaeus' heart as well. Because here we see that he goes beyond the son of David language. Notice how he describes Jesus. He says, Lord, let me recover my sight. Bartimaeus understood he is not just the son of David. He is Lord of all. Do you realize you cannot separate his office as Savior from his office as Lord? There have been many in the 20th century who got this idea you can make him Savior, but not Lord. Maybe you've used that language. Well, he was my Savior, but he wasn't my Lord. You can't come to him as Savior if you don't come to him as Lord. He is Lord. You don't make him anything. You recognize his lordship. And so if you're coming to him and you're not submitting all to him, if you're coming with strings attached, this is an area I'm not going to let you touch. I'll let you save me from hell. You can be my fire insurance, but I'm not going to submit my life to you as Lord. He's not your savior. We get a window into this man's heart because he recognizes Jesus is Lord. And notice what he says. He says, Lord, let me recover my sight. That verb is used three times in this passage. That tells us it's important. It also appears in chapter 7. John the Baptist is in prison. And he sends a messenger to Jesus. Because it didn't fit his eschatology. That the Messiah would come and he would be in prison. He thought the Messiah, just like all the Old Testament prophets, he thought the Messiah would usher in the day of the Lord and all the enemies would be vanquished. He didn't recognize, John the Baptist didn't, that this would come in two stages. There would be an inauguration of the day and there would be a consummation of the day. And between those two times, we would still struggle, though from a posture of victory. So he sends Jesus, a messenger, and the messenger says, Are you the one... To come? Or should we wait for another? And Jesus responds very interesting. He says, you go tell him, I made the lame to walk. I made the the deaf to hear. And I make the blind to see. What kind of answer is that? Well, he knew John the Baptist understood his Bible. And in Isaiah chapter 35, there is a great hope there. In Isaiah 35, you have a prophecy of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord that would be ushered in by the stem from the stump of Jesse. Now, who is Jesse? That's not Bo and Luke's uncle, all right? Jesse is David's father. And so when Isaiah prophesies that a stem from the stump will come, He's prophesying in a day when there is no Davidic throne because they're in exile. The temple's been destroyed. There is no Davidic throne. And God's going to have to work a mercy, a a miracle. Because only God can bring a stem from a stump. Stumps are dead trees. And this this stem from a stump will come and he will usher in the day of the Lord. And listen to how Isaiah 35 describes that day. Verse 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God 
will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. When the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So when Jesus is performing these miracles... Sometimes you hear preachers treat these miracles as as if he was the first member of the power team. Look how strong I am. No, he's signaling that day is here. Because the Davidic son, the Messiah, is here in the flesh. And so he says, recover my sight. He is confessing that Jesus is the son of David, the hope of Israel, the hope of the world. It was the very noun that was used in Luke 4 in that sermon when he says, The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to bring recovering of sight to the blind. In fact, uh, this sight-restoring ministry of Jesus points to a day. When all the physical ailments and problems that we face in a sin-cursed world will be removed. But it also points to something spiritual. 2 Corinthians 4 says, And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In other words, we have spiritual blindness, okay? In whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ In the face of Christ. He says, but God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. And so this physical miracle points to the even greater spiritual miracle where Jesus would open our blind eyes to behold his glory. And notice In 42, Jesus' response, and Jesus said to him, recover your sight. He answers the man according to his request. Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. Now, we don't need to misunderstand this. The power is not in the faith. If it is, none of us are going to heaven. Because the best among us have weak faith. All right? The power is not in the faith, no more than the power is in prayer. The power is in God through His mediator. Faith is the instrument, okay? We're not saved by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Understand that. But we also need to understand what faith is. It's not just some kind of intellectual assent. Oh, Jesus will save me from hell? That's a pretty good deal. I can be saved from hell. I can get heaven. But I don't have to give him my life. That's a pretty good deal right there. No, that's not saving faith. That's spurious faith. And that faith is demonstrated throughout the New Testament. I've been teaching the Awana kids. I kind of float around every Wednesday night. I go from one group and we're catechizing them and teaching them, you know, important truths about the gospel. There are three aspects to saving faith. 
And I've alliterated it so they can remember it. Maybe you can remember this. There are three aspects to saving faith. Comprehensive faith. The kind of faith this man had. First of all, there's comprehension or cognition. You have to understand something about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Okay? And so Christianity is an intellectual faith. It's more than that, but it's not less. And so there is a comprehension that comes with saving faith. You now recognize that you're a sinner and that Jesus Christ is your only hope because he's the substitute. He lived the life that we could not live, that God demands, and then he went to the cross and he died the death that we deserve. And then he was raised from the grave for our pardon, for our forgiveness. So we comprehend that. The second C in saving faith is conviction. We understand that but we now believe it. We actually are convicted that that is absolutely true. If I don't flee to Christ, if I don't close with Christ, I will be lost. I will spend eternity apart from God in a place the Bible describes as eternal torment. So there's a conviction that comes out of that comprehension. And then the third C is commitment. Once I understand who Jesus is and what he has done for sinners like me, and I'm convicted by that reality, I commit to him. I flee to him. That's not works. That's an act of desperation. So comprehension, conviction, and commitment. That's saving faith. In other words, you're submitting to his lordship. You're submitting to him as king. Because you're entering a kingdom where he's the king. Do you think this man had all three aspects of this saving faith? I think so. Of course, we know there are many faithful believers today who are still physically blind. Okay? We do not need to make the mistake. If you've got the faith, God's going to heal you of physical blindness. Jesus didn't heal all the faithful people even then. There were many faithful people Jesus didn't heal physically. The apostle Paul himself would cry out that God remove his thorn in the flesh. And God just said, my grace is sufficient for you. But it does give us hope that one day he's going to heal those ailments. One day he is going to fix the broken things. He's going to make the sad things come untrue. But these miracles also speak to the spiritual realities of our greatest need. It's not physical. Our greatest need is spiritual. We're blind and we need to be able to see. We're deaf to the things of God and we need to be able to hear. We're lame and impotent when it comes to doing the will of God. We need fixing spiritually. These miracles point to that. Well, that brings us to the final aspect of this text. We saw that Jesus is the mediator for God's mercy. Need is what provokes the cry for God's mercy. Finally... We see that worship is the goal for God's mercy. Worship is the goal for God's mercy. Look with me in verse 43. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him. Isn't that beautiful? He was a beggar on the side of the road. And now he's a believer on the road. That's what Jesus does. 
He came to make all things new. He came in a reclamation project. We're all that beggar on the side of the road. And when he saves you, you're now a believer, a follower on the road. Notice, and he followed him, glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Man, this is the goal of God's mercy. Once this man was saved, he began to fulfill the purpose for which he was created. Why was he created? The same reason you were created, for the glory of God. And we will only flourish if we understand that is our only calling. All right? Everything else fills in that calling with with regard to parenting, to marriage, to working our vocations in the workplace, church life. Our purpose is the glory of God. I mean, you think of all the pleasures and all the successes that you've had in your life. All the, the happinesses you've experienced in your life. One thing you know if you're older, they're all fleeting. They're like the wind. No matter how good that vacation is, at some point it's over. Okay? No matter how wonderful the fellowship at a party is or a dinner is, at some point it's over. All of it's transient. All of it is like chasing the wind as Ecclesiastes teaches us. If you're dependent on these things to flourish... You will be a roller coaster in your life, emotionally and spiritually. But when you understand you were created for one purpose, to magnify the glory of God, that's when you begin to flourish. And note as well, as this man was healed, all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. We don't emphasize corporate body life enough in the, in the 21st century, do we? A real means of grace is body life. These people saw the work of God in this man's life and it provoked worship in them. That's the way it should be. And so if your Christian life is isolated and individualistic, you are cutting yourself off from a vital means of grace. We were created for God's worship, a worship of God. Indeed, this call, this text is a call to persistent, desperate faith that will, in the end, provoke worship. You know, in the end, we're going to be like William Montague. Uh, The blinders, we, we now see in part, okay? But one day, we're going to behold him for who he is, and we're going to say, you are more beautiful than we ever imagined. And our present worship is preparation, rehearsal for that day. Okay? But if you don't presently worship Him, and you know if you do, now you may fool people, but you know deep down, if you don't presently worship the living God through His Son, Jesus Christ, it means you're still blind. It means you're still spiritually blind. And what's worse, you may not know it. You may not even know it. Or maybe you know it, but you have too much pride to confess it. Imagine blind Bartimaeus. He's on the road. 
Jesus is coming. What's all this commotion? Well, it's Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, man. I have this condition. But what would the people think? It would be embarrassing if I, if I, if I cause a disturbance. I'm just going to let him pass by. He would have been lost forever. But that's not what he did. He humbled himself. Of course, that humility was provoked by true desperation. How about you? How about you? It would have been utterly catastrophic for this man. But how about you? Jesus Christ has come to make the blind eyes to see. He's come to make us new. He's come in a great recovery project. And I believe there's some here today that have never trusted Christ. I believe it. It's not because I have anybody in mind. It's just that in a crowd this large and in a culture as secular as ours, there are people today in this room, I believe, who have never trusted Christ. You can't. I'd love to talk to you about that. I would love to set up a meeting with you about that. Maybe we can meet in my office. We can pray about it. If you have questions about how to be saved, I would love to seek to answer those questions for you. Or maybe you're a Christian today and you just need renewal. You can come down here. You can pray. I can pray with you. Whatever the need is. Let's stand and sing. And won't you respond to the Holy Spirit's call through the pen of Luke? sing that one more time together. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns. Unending love. Amazing grace. Go in the grace of our God.